Hello and welcome to the Grattan Podcast. I'm Kat Clay, the Head of Digital Communications. This week we have the second part of our two-part special podcast where John Daly, our CEO of 11 Years, interviews our new CEO, Danielle Wood, on the future of Grattan, the importance of public trust in institutions and her optimism in the potential for policy change in Australia. We hope you enjoy this special podcast recording. Danny, you've been at Grattan for a while, so you have two things you have to explain. Firstly, why did you come to Grattan at all? Uh, look, it's pretty simple, actually. I, I came to Grattan because I thought it did fantastic policy work and it, it seemed like the sort of organisation that I wanted to be part of. Um, so I, I sort of first came across Grattan. I was working at the ACCC and I was working on um, some litigation in the pharmaceutical industry and I had to try and understand how government reimbursements for PBS drugs coming off patent worked. And when the more I read about the system, the more outrageous it struck me as from a taxpayer perspective. And I thought, you know, someone must have written something about this. Uh, I did some Googling and I came across a fantastic Stephen Duckett report called Australia's Bad Drug Deal, um, which which really kind of nailed the outrageousness of it and, and made sensible recommendations. So uh, from there, I went down a bit of a Grattan wormhole. I, I really liked the work um, that you'd been doing, John, on budgets and economic policy because those were sort of my areas of interest. Uh, and it, it wasn't long after that that there was a job working at Grattan Advertise. So it sort of uh, all seemed like it was meant to be. And so having been at Grattan for six years, uh, you put your hand up um, when uh, the board advertised for a new chief executive why did you do that rather than stay with the charmed life of being a Grattan program director? <laughs> Maybe I thought the life of a CEO was more charmed. Um, uh, no, look, I, I really, I mean, it certainly wasn't something I did lightly, but I did that really because I'm passionate about the organisation and what it does. Uh, I thought I was the right person to lead it to the next stage. Um, you know, and I do think it is, it's really one of the best jobs in policy. Um, you get to sort of, ask your own questions, the, the sort of questions that you think are the, the most important ones. Um, you get to spend time thinking deeply about them, you know, go away, talk to people um, with knowledge on the topic, um, do research, crunch the numbers, do analysis, work with some of the brightest people in the business to, to find out what are the right answers. Um, and then, you know, the third bit is really important too. You get to try and push for change. You don't just do the report and leave it on the shelf. Um, you're trying to persuade decision makers and the public that that change is a good idea. Um, so, you know, the job at Grant was inherently appealing and, you know, I, I wanted to take it on because I felt that I had something to say and um, plenty of ideas about how to make Australia a better place. So before we get to those ideas, you've already been at Grattan, as we said, for six years. Um, what have you been your best memory so far, of course, apart from beating the chief executive at table tennis on a regular basis? <laughs> not just the chief executive <laughs> all the way down the <laughs> all the way down the staff ladder um oh it's a it's it's hard to, to choose between your children um I think um uh, certainly the work on intergenerational inequality uh, and we've done a number of projects um under that banner you know I think I'm pretty proud of that I think when you know if you look back to when we did the wealth of generations report back in 2014 um I think we were the first to really sort of put up in lights the fact that there was a very significant difference in wealth accumulation across generations and um, the role that 
the house price boom had played as part of that. I think we were really the first to highlight the fact that the tax system was treating people of different ages very differently, not on the basis of income, but simply at the, the basis of where they were in their lives. Um, so those were issues that had been bubbling away, but I don't think they'd had much prominence. And, you know, I think we really brought them together under that broader story about intergenerational inequality. Um, and that's now something that's really sort of part of the mainstream policy discussion. Um, the other one I would point to um, is our work on government integrity. Um, there had already been quite a lot of work in that space. Um, you know, there were a lot of people that had pointed out flaws in the donations regime or the lobbying regime or corruption protections. But I think what we did there was to take a bit of a different lens on it. And we took a really um, sort of Grattan type data driven approach. So, you know, crunching the numbers on political donations and highlighting the fact that Heavy, heavily regulated sectors, you know, the ones that had the most to gain or lose from government decisions were the ones giving proportionately more money to political campaigns. We, we looked at the diaries of state ministers and again, highlighting the fact that it seemed to be heavily regulated businesses that were getting almost all the meetings with senior ministers. Uh, we, we traced where ministers were working after politics. We found that about a quarter go into special interest roles. Um, so I think it was, you know, really adding that data-driven lens to highlight the extent of the problem with political influence in Australia was the, the real contribution of that report. So, so if you think about those those highlights you've had and the, and the, the things you've seen at Grattan at six years and, and over six years and indeed the things that attracted you to Grattan in the first place, what is it that you're very keen to ensure that Grattan keeps um, as in your time as chief executive? It was, it was really interesting to me actually in our last in the last podcast discussion, John, when you were talking about the values um, that you wanted to bring to Grattan, because when I think about the things to me that are the, the sort of the non-negotiables, the things that I absolutely want to maintain, uh, I think they go to those values that you articulated. Um, so independence is, you know, a, a non-negotiable for me. You know, the fact that we don't do um, paid work or consulting work. Um, I think absolutely the quality and rigour of the work. I really um, value the the sort of the very sophisticated analytical work that we're able to do, um, the new boundaries that we're sort of pushing into with data visualisation. Um, you know, I think all of that really ensures that we have clarity and rigour in our thinking and as well as boosting the persuasiveness of our recommendations. Uh, and, and thirdly, I would say the culture. You know, we have a fantastic positive culture at Grattan. Uh, it's one of intellectual curiosity. People are interested in the world. They're open to new ideas. Uh, and that's really overlaid with a care about the quality of the work and, and making policy better. Um, so that's incredibly important to me um, as a leader to maintain that. So when you take on a role like this, there's, there's always things that you want to maintain, but you don't take on a role like this unless there's new things you want to do or things you want to do differently or things you want to stop doing. So so I wondered if you could lay out, you know, where do you want to take Grant? What do you want to, how do you want it to be different? Uh, probably like a lot of people, there's always more that I want to do more of, perhaps more than less of. Um, so look, one thing I think there is an opportunity for us to do more of is cross-team collaboration. Um, so, you know, Grattan's generally worked uh, almost like a federation. You know, the health team does health policy work, education team does education policy work. You know, something that COVID really drove home for me is, you know, the the another big advantage that Grattan has is really being able to bring together expertise on those different areas. So, you know, our work on COVID was so powerful because it joined up the health response with the economic response with 
thinking about how the world changes in terms of schools policies, transport policy, energy policy. Um, so I think I'll be looking for more opportunities for those types of cross-cutting projects. And I think, you know, on big issues like climate change, on productivity reform agenda, um, you know, they sort of bring themselves to bringing together different perspectives or lines of policy thinking. Something else I think kind of inevitably, um, given that Grattan's now 11 years old, uh, it's got a back book of, I think, 140 reports, um, is that we will probably spend more time on advocacy. I think, you know, given that a lot of those ideas are still there on the shelf, they haven't all been taken up yet. Um, you know, increasingly, we need to be looking for the right moment to, to reinsert those ideas into debate. Um, and, you know, if the window is open on any of them, you know, spend time helping navigate them through. Um, and finally, I think more work around just trying to inform the debate. So sometimes I think some of the most powerful pieces of work we've done are just putting facts on the table so that debate can occur in context. Um, so, you know, I think one of the most popular blog posts we've ever put out there was just how much does a typical Australian earn? Um, and a lot of people were surprised to hear that, you know, the average taxpayer's earning 60000 a year or the median's 45000 And I think you end up actually with a different policy discussion when you, when you realise what the income distribution actually looks like. Um, so we do a lot of that through the blog at the moment. Um, we're talking about, you know, whether we actually need a different type of publication, like a Grattan explainer, simple pieces that, you know, set out facts about a particular policy or how the world works. Uh, because increasingly journalists um, are just not resourced to do that type of work themselves. You've already talked a bit about um, how COVID has changed things and in particular the way it's driven sort of a, a more collaborative cross-Grattan process. Um, but I dare say COVID's changed a lot more things than that. So uh, you know, if you think back to uh, six or eight months ago when you were explaining to the board why you should be chosen as the chief executive, I dare say your pitch didn't include COVID. Uh, it has changed the world a lot. Um, apart from changing what Grattan's worked on in the short run over the last six months and apart from driving this more collaborative approach um, between Grattan teams, how else do you think COVID has changed Grattan and how do you think it's going to change what it does over the next 12, 18, 24 months? Um, so, look, I think um, at, a, at the most prosaic level, it's obviously changed the way we work. Um, so um, none of us have been in the office since um, the start of March. So we're, you know, like every other organisation, thinking about um, how do we make virtual teams work? How do we try and replace, um, you know, those really sort of spillover benefits of being in the office, the spontaneous interactions, the, the rituals and culture? Um, so we, we've been like other organisations, finding ways to try and do those things online. Um, but, you know, that's a, from a policy perspective, what does it change for Grattan? Um, you know, not only did we, when COVID was first announced, you know, divert significant resources um, to thinking about what COVID meant for policy in the short term, um, that also meant putting aside certain projects and I think, you know, as we look to the next six to 12 months, what the recovery book highlighted was just how full the plate of governments is going to be. They've got just a huge number of significant decisions that they cannot avoid taking. Um, so I think it means that we have to be um, careful about the kind of policy recommendations that we put up. Um, so we need to be focusing on things that are going to be relevant to the decisions that have to be made. 
I think really big long-term reforms, you know, debates like tax reform probably just aren't going to be on the agenda in that period. Um, so holding off on things like that, even though we think they're important, um, that they're just probably things that we're not going to be talking a lot about in the next 12 months. Well, you've, you've talked in the last couple of days about the budget update statement being a bit of a missed opportunity. So if you had been both Commonwealth Prime Minister and Commonwealth Treasurer and Premier of all the states at the same time, what are the really the <laughs> really big things that you should think they should be getting right over the next 12 months? Um, so I think the key things in the the next 12 months, so of one, the health response. Um, clearly, we're not going to have um, any recovery or proper full recovery on the economic side until the health side is under control. And you know, there was a very important um, report coming out of National Cabinet today from the Prime Minister when he said um, that the government or the policy goal here on the health response is zero community transmission. Um, that is what we've been advocating for and calling elimination. It does quack like elimination, yeah. doesn't it? It does quack a little bit like elimination, but look, look, you know, who wants to be caught up in definitional wars? I think the, the important thing is zero community transmission is the right thing to be shooting for, and now the government has said that. So I think that's an incredibly important development, uh, and obviously, you know, getting the policy settings in place to support that will now be a key priority. On the economic side, you know, I think the number one priority as we move out of the, um, you know, what I call the rescue phase, that sort of emergency policy phase when we were trying to keep businesses and households alive during shutdowns, um, now we're in moving into this recovery phase. The, the challenge is how do you get the economy moving? How do you get people back into work so we don't have all the terrible problems associated with long-term unemployment? Um, so there we're looking at things like, um, government spending to boost jobs through things like um, social housing in the construction centre, um, government spending on services in areas of social needs that have emerged during COVID, um, so mental health services, um, tutoring to help disadvantaged students catch up on lost learning. Um, so those are all the sorts of policy debates that I think we should be having in the near term. Some of those other um, supply side debates around IR reform, tax reform, as I said, all very important, but don't strike me as um, you know high on the priority list in the next six to twelve months. Mm. So if we move beyond that kind of shorter term time frame into the long term time frame, um, you know the world has had pandemics before. Um, life has indeed gone on in the long run, um, and uh, I'm hoping that at least some of that long run will be while you're still chief executive. Out of all of those long-term reforms, what would be the ones that you really put at the top of the list um, we talked about before? You can't do everything at once. So in the long run, what would you be really spending your political capital on? Well, if I, if I did get the job of being Prime Minister, Treasurer and State Premiers all at once, I think, um, look, the... I have a huge number of things that I'm passionate about, but the, you know the the one thing that really keeps me up at night is is climate change. Um, you know, if I think about how profound the implications are for life already, um, and how much bigger they will get for future generations, you know, it, it sort of dumbfounds me that this issue has been a political football essentially in Australia for more than a decade, 
Um, so if I could turn the ship around on one policy area and one policy area only, that, that would be the one that I would choose. Hmm. And and what if we kind of look at that broader political environment, um, and you know, maybe climate change is is emblematic of it, but but you've also been running the institutional reform sort of side of Grattan for the last couple of years. What what keeps you awake at night about the process, about the environment? You know, what what is it that we need to do better um, in terms of how the system works? Um, so obviously we've written a lot about the integrity stuff and I've sort of, you know, talked about donations reform and lobbying reform and integrity reform, and that's all important. But I think, you know, there's a, a bigger piece as well about um, protecting institutions. Um, so if I could just take, you know, one example, um, making sure that we have a, a strong and robust public service. So, you know, policy works best when you've got a, a public service there putting forward policy ideas, putting forward decisions, options to decision makers. Um, you know, politicians obviously have the ultimate call because they're accountable to the people and they need to make those difficult value judgments. But you know, when you crimp the public service, when you let it wither on the vine, um, either because you're not resourcing it adequately or because you're cutting it out of policy development, um, you lose that expertise, you lose policy memory and ultimately, policy will be the poorer for it. Um, so, you know, I think it's worth remembering it was only a few months before COVID that the Prime Minister gave a speech saying that it's government's job to come up with policy and the public service is just there for implementation. Um, during COVID, I think we've seen almost a 180-degree shift on that. Um, so we've seen the Chief Medical Officer flanking the Prime Minister at every press conference. Uh, we've, we've had a an economic support package that, at least to date, has been pretty swift and effective, and, and that's had Treasury's fingers all over it. Um, so I think, you know, we should be thankful as a nation that we had that capability sitting there in the public service, and I think, you know, we need to be protective of that during the good times. Mm. I mean, as you say, it certainly seems to have changed in the last few months, but but there's been plenty of people complaining that it's been getting le um, worse for a long time. And I just wondered, what do you think are the institutional drivers behind the public service being less resourced, less listened to? And even if maybe things have reversed in the short term, do you think that those long-term drivers have changed or, or is this a, a, an ongoing problem? And, and if it is an ongoing problem, what do we do about it? I mean, other than sort of telling governments, you know, exhorting them, it'd be good to do better on this. Um, I guess one of the, the tough questions here is is how do you get forces at work so that it changes in a more permanent way rather than just whenever we happen to have a pandemic? Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I think there has been, uh, on resourcing, there's certainly been a temptation um, when governments have been looking for ways to cut down spending to just sort of add another efficiency dividend on the public service, and that seems like a low-cost way to um, achieve spending goals. Um, I think, you know, but that's sat within a broader environment where there's been a sort of bit of a um, decline in trust in, in experts and a decline in the um, value that people are putting in expertise, and that's a, a sort of a broader cultural shift. It's not, you know, unique to, to politicians. We see it in, um, in all the data 
Um, so that's it's a very hard thing to turn around. So I actually don't have a good answer to that. Um, I think you know situations like COVID show the importance of expertise and of strong institutions. Um, I think it's important that organisations like Grattan um, continue to beat that drum and talk about how important those things are, um, because I think really it's the change in attitude that that matters here. Mm. And and given that I guess concern about whether or not experts are going to get listened to, concern about those longer term um, drivers, and as you say, some of them are um, you know much broader political trends. Um, in terms of uh, loss of respect for expertise. Um, do you have reasons to be optimistic about future policy development in Australia? Um, you know, why should we be hopeful for our children? <laughs> um, look, I think I, I am partly optimistic. Um, and, you know, COVID actually has made me a little bit more optimistic in a way, even though obviously it is a crisis and, um, you know, it won't last forever and things look a diff little bit different. But, you know, I think, um, certainly the quality of the decision-making we've seen, you know, not perfect, but pretty good. Um, you know, we've seen quite a lot of cooperation. We've seen some pretty constructive bipartisanship. Um, all of that gives me hope. Um, you know, I think even though when the crisis passes, um, we will go back to something a bit more like business as usual. Uh, I think even those sort of short-term shifts in the dynamic can be helpful. Um, you know, certainly we see different, relationships that have been built during this crisis um, you know when you've got the coalition attorney general and the head of the union movement um, saying nice things about each other on tv um, you know you've got uh, labor state premiers and liberal prime ministers talking about their mutual respect for each other that's going to give them a basis to to work together going forward and i think the other thing that's really shifted um, is the public trust um, so you know you and I, John, have certainly been looking at the, the indicators around trust in government for a number of years now, and I think it's fair to say they've been basically heading south for a decade. Uh, what has really turned around during COVID is the public's trust across all institutions, but particularly in Parliament. Um, so governments are going to come out of this, I think, um, with a lot of goodwill, and they can use that goodwill to try and get things done. Um, so that does make me more hopeful perhaps than I was a few months ago about the capacity for, you know, positive policy change. Well, I guess that's been one of the things that, that you've been uh, talking about for a long time around trust in government. The other, as you already mentioned, is around whether the next generation is going to be um, uh, at least as well off as its parents. You've written extensively in um, Generation Gap about why we might be worried about that. Do you think we should still be worried? Do you think COVID makes it more or less likely that the younger generation is going to be better or worse off than its parents? Oh, look, I'm extremely worried, in the, at least in the short term. I mean, the, the economic outcomes that we've seen during COVID for young people have been particularly brutal. I mean, so young people always fare worse during an economic downturn, but um, that's even been exacerbated this time around um, because those industries that are on the front line of this, you know, sort of hospitality, arts and recreation are disproportionately employers of young people. So, you know, we've got youth unemployment sitting above 16% and we know, of course, the, the, the true rate of unemployment is significantly higher than that. So in the, the longer term, I think, you know, one, it depends on how well we come out of this and, you know, that's part of the reason why 
we have really emphasised the importance of prioritising the economic recovery and prioritising jobs. Um, and in the longer term, you know, I really do think that question depends on how well our policy processes can deliver. So, you know, can we get real action on climate change? Um, can we have a proper debate about boosting housing supply and improving affordability? Um, can we find policies that will boost productivity and wages? Um, can we find ways to reduce educational disadvantage? Uh, those are the sort of the big thorny issues that we are going to need to see movement on if we're going to be sure that we are leaving the world a better place for the next generation. Well, even one of the one of the biggest and thorniest issues is the tax and transfer system and the way that it effectively transfers an awful lot of resources from younger generations to older generations. And of course, that's proven, at least for the last decade, to be an almost impossible thing to unwind. Do you think it's likely we're going to get any movement on that? Look, it may be that we have a different debate on some of those things after COVID. Um, so, you know, I think as I said, you know, young people have been particularly hit hard by this. So there is a, a framing of this that, you know, young people have essentially taken a significant economic hit to facilitate the health response. Um, and that health response has been about protecting community health, but particularly protecting older people who tend to, um, you know, fare worse from this virus. Um, so I think in a world where we come out of this, no doubt with a huge amount of new debt, as, as we had confirmed yesterday, um, when we are looking at um, how we consolidate the budget position on the other side, and I should stress that this is not something we stress, you know, we, we think we should be happening anytime soon, but as we come out the other side of this and we look at how we're going to pay for it, um, I think it's very clear that those things should be on the table. What we don't want to do is try and pay for it on the other side by just um, letting income taxes do the work or, you know, cutting services to the bone because that means young people would effectively pay twice. So, Danny, you've got plenty of things on your plate. You've got plenty of challenges. Um, what are you most looking forward to? I'm most looking forward to getting back into the office and seeing everyone again. Um, we know that's not true, Danny. We know that you only want to go to the office so you can beat us all at table tennis. <laughs> well, partly that, but, you know, honestly, um, you know, I, I do think there will be a, a real discussion about you know, flexible work and uh, how much we work from home, you know, both at Grattan and in every other organisation um, after this pandemic. But, you know, it really does highlight to me the, you know, that the value of face-to-face -face contact and those, those sort of spontaneous interactions you get, they're very hard to replace. Well, look, certainly it's been one of the uh, nicest features of my time at Grattan as Chief Executive has been having yourself and people like you um, uh, at Grattan to talk to, to argue with, to work with, uh, and I'm sure um, it will continue to be the same under your leadership. So um, I'm sure Grattan has a very bright future um, with you leading it. Um, thank you for your um, thoughts today, and uh, I in particular look forward to seeing uh, where Grattan goes uh, under your tenure. Um, I think you've got perhaps the best job in the country and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you very much. Grattan Institute is a non-profit organisation dedicated to providing independent, rigorous and practical solutions to Australia's most pressing problems. We rely on people like you to continue our research. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please donate at grattan.edu.au forward slash donate.